A spokesman for the National Weather Service described it this way. He said, it's too large to outrun and too strong to survive if you're in its way. What was he talking about? He was talking about an F5 tornado. They rank tornadoes by F rankings, and F5 is as strong as they get. An F5 tornado, like the one that hit Gerald, Texas, this past week, is nothing to play around with. You realize to be an F5, you have to have winds of in excess of 260 miles an hour, if you can imagine that. These things are so powerful, they actually take the asphalt and lift it off the road, straight off the road, if you can imagine And this thing wiped through Gerald, Texas, killing 30 people, doing $20 million worth of damage. USA Today said the path of the tornado was completely flat. Not a tree was sticking up. Not a house wall was standing. And as I've been reading this week about the events in Gerald, Texas, there's only one word that I've been able to come up with to define what happened there. The only word I can think of is the word tragedy. What an incredible tragedy. Now, the reason I bring that up is because today I want to talk to you about a different kind of tragedy, a spiritual tragedy, the tragedy of prayerlessness. You see, I believe that we as 20th century Christians have lost our awareness of how potent prayer really is. And that's a tragedy. I believe we've lost our grasp on how God honors prayer. And that's a tragedy. I believe that we've lost our grasp on how God alters the events of the world and does majestic things in our world in response to prayer. And that's a tragedy. So today, I want to talk to you about the power of prayer. And my hope is to increase your understanding of what prayer really can do and then to motivate you to do more of it. So let's see if we can get there, okay? We're looking at an event from the life of the great Old Testament man of God, Samuel. Samuel, if you remember, had led the nation of Israel for many years, and now he's old, and the people had come to him and said, we want a king. We want a permanent king that we can see, Samuel. And so in response to that, God told Samuel to appoint them a king, a man whose name was Saul. And here in chapter 12, Israel is gathered together to formally crown Saul as king. And during this time, Samuel gives a little speech pointing out to the Israelites that they've done something incredibly wrong here. And what he tells them is that they've dealt with the symptom rather than the problem. That the problem is not that they needed a permanent king. They had a permanent king. He says in the chapter, God is your permanent king. And every time you called out to God, he goes through, if you read it, he says to them, God came through for you every time. The problem, gang, is not that you didn't have a king who was capable of handling your needs. The problem is that you weren't loyal and true and faithful to the king that you had. And so all you've done is deal with the symptom. And by asking for a king, what you've done is insult God and imply that he wasn't powerful enough to take care of you. And so the people hearing this, pick up with me at verse 19, the people hearing this, they were... Well, they were devastated. They realized they've made a terrible mistake. And he says, they say in verse 19, they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, pray to the Lord, your God, for your servants, for us, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Look at Samuel's response. He says, do not be afraid. Yes, you've done this evil. 
Yet, if you turn away, uh, if you don't turn away from the Lord, but you serve the Lord with all your heart, if you turn away from idols, God's not going to kill you. Look at verse 22. For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own in the first place. Now, what's Samuel really saying here? He's saying, you guys are right. You really did mess up. But let me teach you something about God. God is the God of the second chance. And God is the God of the third chance and the fourth chance and the fiftieth chance. And if you'll come to God and you'll confess to God what you did and with brokenness of heart you'll tell Him you're sorry. And if from this point on you'll make up your mind to stick with Him and be loyal to Him and serve Him, God's not going to kill anybody. God will pick you up right where you are and restore your life. May I say to you, if you're here today and you feel like you've made some horrible mistakes in your life, because of which you and God are always going to be estranged, always going to be, well, separated just a little bit, that it's never going to be the same as it used to be. Listen to what Samuel's saying. Samuel is saying that's not so. That God is the God of the second chance for you and for me. And that if we'll come to God with humility and brokenness of heart over what we've done in our lives to displease Him, God will take us with open arms and He'll forgive us and He'll restore to us the years the locusts have eaten. So if you're here today and you feel like a locust plague has moved through your life, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and that's how your life seems to you, I want to say God is the God of the second chance. He's got His arms wide open and if you'll just let Him, He'll restore to you the years the locust plague ate in your life. Give Him a chance. He's not out to kill people. He's out to restore and love people. Well, look what goes on after this. Samuel, remember, they ask him to pray for him. Look what Samuel says, verse 23. And Samuel goes on to say, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Now, this to me is an incredible statement. Notice how Samuel refers to prayerlessness. He doesn't call prayerlessness an oversight. He doesn't call prayerlessness a careless omission. He doesn't say, well, you know, if I don't pray for you, I'll be letting you all down. No, he calls prayerlessness sin against the Lord. He says it's a spiritual failure, a spiritual tragedy for me to fail to pray for you. Now, I don't know that most of us are used to thinking about prayerlessness in these terms that we would call it sin against the Lord. Spiritual tragedy, but that's what the man of God, Samuel, saw it as, and that's what he referred to it as. That's the end of the passage that we want to work through so far this morning, but of course it leads us, leaves us with the really important question, and you all know what the really important question is. What is it? Thank you. I love this group over here. Don't you love this group over here? Y'all got to try to keep up with them. All right. Now, you know, I've been in the pastorate for almost 20 years, and here's something that I've learned in talking with Christians. I have learned that most of us as Christians, we read the Bible, we read about these great men and women of God in the Bible, people like Samuel, and like David, and Abraham, and Ruth, and somehow we feel like these people were just born as giants for God. That they were just made of different protoplasm than you and I are made out of. 
But that is not at all true. The fact of the matter is that if we want to get some insight into what makes the difference between the men and women of God in the Bible and the rest of the world, we get that insight right here in what Samuel said. You see, Samuel reveals to us right here that he was a mighty man of prayer. That this was a man who knew what it was to pray and took prayer seriously and did it. He reminds me of another man in the Bible, a guy named Daniel. You remember Daniel? Daniel was the prime minister of the, of the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. This was an enormous empire. In today's terms, the Persian Empire at that time stretched from Tibet to Turkey, if you get a sense of how huge this empire was. And he was the prime minister. You think his schedule was busy? You think he had some things in his date book? And yet, there was a man who, regardless of his schedule and regardless of the great demands on his time, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 tells us that three times a day, this man would retire into his private quarters, fall on his knees, and seek the face of God in prayer. You want to know where Daniel's great consistency in life came from? It came from three times on his knees a day seeking the face of God. You want to know where the great wisdom and discernment that he had came from? It came from three times a day on his knees with God. You want to know where his great personal integrity came from? It came from three times a day on his knees with God. You want to know where he got the courage to go into the lion's den with nothing but his faith in God to protect him? He got it. From three times on his knees a day with God. I mean, lots of us as Christians know how to do crisis praying, don't we? Oh God, oh God, if you do this, I'll be a missionary, I promise God. We know how to do that kind of praying. And is there anything wrong with crisis praying? No, if you've got a crisis, you better pray. That's a good idea. But there's so much more to prayer than crisis praying. And Samuel knew that, and, and Daniel understood that, that there are so many deeper and more compelling reasons to be people of prayer than just crisis. And it was because of these other reasons that they became the man of God that they became. And I want to take the last little bit of time I have to talk to you about what are these compelling reasons for prayer beyond crisis in our life that should drive us and motivate us to be people of prayer. I've got five to give you very quickly. Number one. Reason number one, what are these compelling reasons? Reason number one, prayer is how we build intimacy with God. You know, with every relationship, whether it's a marriage or dating couple or friends, with any relationship, what builds intimacy in that relationship is consistent, regular, honest communication. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. If you want to be intimate with God, it takes consistent, regular, honest communication. Defined as simply as you can define it, prayer is communicating with God. It's talking and listening to God. And so if you want to be a man or a woman of God, you've got to be intimate with God. And the only way to get intimate with God is through prayer. Reason number two, not only does it produce intimacy with God, but reason number two is that prayer brings perspective to the situations in our life. How do you keep from making dumb, stupid mistakes in your life? How do you get the perspective to make wise choices? Well, prayer for a Christian is an incredibly important part of that process. 
You know, I've been reading this past week with the, and I'm sure you have been keeping up with it too, the saga of Lieutenant Kelly Flynn of the Air Force. Here's a woman who attended the Air Force Academy and finished in the top 15% of her class. Not an easy thing to do. Then she goes off to flight school and graduates with distinguished honors from flight school. Not an easy thing to do. And then she qualifies to be the first woman in history to ever fly a B-52. 488,000 pounds of airplane, which can carry 70,000 pounds of nuclear weapons when so armed. Think this thing is a beast of an airplane, or what? And this is the first woman in the history of the Air Force to ever fly one of these. And yet, she had an affair with a married enlisted man, she disobeyed orders when told by her superior officer to stop seeing him. She then lied to her superior officer about whether or not she was continuing to see him. She's been dismissed from the service now and owes the Air Force Academy $20,000 in back debt because she didn't finish her service requirement. And when I've been reading this all week long, let me tell you the one huge question that kept coming up on my screen. Here's the question. Why would this lady jeopardize everything she has worked so hard for and everything she has sacrificed so much to achieve, why would she jeopardize it like this? Yeah, you know, how could she make such foolish choices? And then I found myself thinking, well, Lon, how come you make some of the dumb choices you make? And folks, how come you make some of the stupid choices you make? I'll tell you the answer. The answer is we lose perspective. The answer is we get so close to the situation that we lose our focus. We can't see the forest for the trees. So how can you and I as Christians keep this from happening to us? The answer is prayer. Prayer restores perspective. Prayer is when God is able to say to us, Hey, knock, knock. Have you really thought this through? Do you really understand what you're getting yourself into? Do you understand the consequences that are going to come if you do this? Is this really what you want to do? You know, there's a great verse in the Bible, Psalm 32, verse 8. It says, God speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Where does that happen? Folks, it happens on our knees. If I had seriously prayed about it, I would never have emptied my savings account and gone out and bought silver at $35 an ounce. Say, you did that? I did it. Years ago. In fact, I got more silver than, than, than you know what to do with. And I would love to sell you some silver. And I'll even tell you what. I will sell it to you for exactly what I paid for it. Don't want to make a dime. $35 an ounce. Meet me in the front after the service. We'll get this done. Nobody's come yet. I don't expect you to. This was stupid. Like the time I went out and bought a conversion van. I, ref I affectionately refer to it as the black hole. This thing sucked me dry of everything I had, and I finally sold it at a huge financial loss. It was a total disaster of a vehicle. Did I seriously pray about it before I went and bought it? No. In fact, I look back on just about every stupid decision I've ever made in my life, and depending upon whether you're asking me or my wife, I've either made some or a lot, depending upon who you're asking. She's a lot, by the way, and I'm some. 
But anyway, the, the, whether I've made some or a lot, one thing that's very interesting is with every one of them, when I look back, I find I didn't stop and really pray about that and ask God about that and get perspective on that. I just ran out and did it. And that's why I made the stupid choice I made. Folks, if you want to keep, on, keep from stepping on the alligators and damaging your life and your reputation, i got a good piece of advice to give you. Learn to pray about things and get perspective before you make a decision. Number three. Reason number three, not only because prayer brings us intimacy with God and He gives us perspective in life, but the, another compelling reason to be people of prayer is number three, prayer fortifies us to stand firm for God. As you know, ours is not an easy world in which to live for God. Ours is not an easy world in which to stand for God. But friends, the world has never been an easy place to live for God or stand for God. It wasn't for the early church either. I want you to turn in the New Testament with me to Acts chapter 4, if you don't mind. It's page 773, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 773, Acts chapter 4. And let me give you the background while you're turning. Jesus, after he rose from the dead and commissioned the early church, he went back to heaven and they went out into the streets preaching about Christ. Well, the people who killed Jesus were not real excited, frankly, to see them out in the street preaching, so they arrested Peter and John. And here's what happened. Chapter 4, look at verse 18. And then the, the, the leaders called Peter and John in and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 21. And after they threatened them further, they let them go. Do you think that these threats were anything to worry about? Well, friends, these are the same people who three weeks earlier nailed Jesus up on the cross and killed him. And these people said to Peter and John, if you guys don't stop going out there on the street and preaching, you know what we did to your boss? We're going to do it to you. Do you think these threats ought to have been taken seriously? I do. I'd have taken them very seriously if I was living then. Well, did the Peter and John stop preaching in the street? You know they didn't. Did they stop evangelizing in the open air? You know they didn't. So where did they get the courage to stand up against what they knew was a very serious threat and keep going on for God? Let me show you. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them, all the threats. And 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Verse 31. And after they prayed, the place where they, were, where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God boldly and went right back out in the street. Where did these people get this courage and the power and the fortitude to stand for God? They got it on their knees. Where are you going to get this, the fortitude and the courage to be what God wants you to be in the world? To stand for ethics and morals and decency and honesty and the truth of the gospel? You're going to get it on your knees. I don't know if any of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany in the late 20s and early 30s when Nazi Germany came to power. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as the 30s continued and then Hitler took it into the 40s, began preaching more and more openly against Adolf Hitler and preaching in his pulpit against Nazism and the atrocities of Nazism. And eventually Hitler got sick of hearing about it and he had Dietrich Bonhoeffer arrested and put into concentration camp. Now Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not Jewish, he was not Slavic, he was not Polish, he was an Aryan German, but they threw him in concentration camp anyway at Dachau. 
And in April of, 19, of 1945, less, uh, only a week or so before Hitler's death, Hitler personally sent a message to Dachau telling them to kill Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The Allies were only about two weeks away from liberating this camp, and Hitler wanted to make sure that Bonhoeffer never lived to see that liberation, and he was put to death at the direct order of Adolf Hitler. Just after he died, one of the Nazi doctors there in the camp wrote this about him. And I quote, he said, the prisoners were taken from their cells and their death sentences read to them. Through the half open door in his room, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer just before they came to get him for execution, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was moved by the way the man prayed, so certain that God heard him at the place of execution. He again said a prayer. And then he calmly climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. A few seconds later, he was dead. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have never seen a person die like this. End of quote. Where did Dietrich Bonhoeffer get the courage to stand for God? On his knees. Where are you going to get it? On your knees. Number four. Not only do we pray for these other reasons, but fourth, we pray because prayer can change things. Prayer can change circumstances around us. Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Listen to what God says. Call to me, God says, and I will answer. I think that's pretty cool. Call to me, God says, and I will answer. And he goes on to say, and I will show you great and mighty things that you cannot even imagine. God says, just give me a chance. You want to see me do something in the world? You call to me and you sit back and watch what I do. It's a very simple formula. God says, you pray and I will move the world in response. There was a fascinating article in Time Magazine last year. I don't know if you saw it. It was called uh, Faith and Healing. And the article asked the question, can prayer and faith really improve your physical health? And here's the answer they give. It says, a growing and surprising body of scientific evidence says yes. And they cited a whole bunch of medical studies indicating that prayer can actually make a difference in your health. Here's the one I love. 1988. Excuse me, Dr. Randolph Bird of San Francisco General Hospital, a coroner, he was a, he's a uh, cardiologist. Here's what he did. He took 393 coronary care patients. Most had had heart attacks, some had had heart surgery. He divided the 393 of them into two groups, arbitrarily. He took the names of one half of them, one of the groups, and he assigned them out to born-again Christians in the San Francisco Bay Area to pray by name for these patients. The other patients had nobody praying for them. He did not tell the patients he was doing this. There's no placebo effect here. None of the patients had any idea this was going on. At the end of the study period of a couple years, listen to what Time Magazine said he found. Bird found that the unprayed for patients were five times more likely to have needed antibiotics, three times more likely to have developed complications and needed further surgery, and that the unprayed for patients recovered significantly slower than the prayed for patients. He published it in a major medical magazine. And as you can imagine, this is bringing the medical community a little bit of angst. You know what I'm saying? To read this study. Time magazine says this. 
that lots of medical evidence has been presented, including this study, to suggest that there is an innate, independent power to prayer that defies any explanation except God answering prayer. That's pretty incredible, huh? Should that produce any angst in us? Should that surprise us? No. Why should it surprise us? God said, call to me and I'll do stuff you can't believe. You got something in your life you're not happy with? Let me give you a piece of advice. Call to God and let Him answer. Will He change it exactly the way you want? I can't promise you that, but I promise you, you call to God, He will answer and He will work in that situation in ways you can't believe. Number five and finally... Not only should we be praying because prayer changes situations, but finally, the reason we should be praying is because prayer changes us. I meet a lot of Christians who feel that the highest purpose for prayer is to change situations around me. Eh, survey says, eh, wrong. That's not true. The highest purpose of prayer is not to change circumstances, it's to change me. You know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know the story. He went in, the Bible says, distressed, in anguish of soul. Why? Because in his human nature, he did not want to go to the cross, pure and simple. And yet he knew that was the will of God for his life, to go. So we've got this gap here. Yet he came out of the garden a few minutes later, strong, resolute, calm, determined, and never flinched again and went to the cross and died for you and me. Now, what happened in the garden that changed him? What happened in the garden that brought his will into alignment with the will of God the way that it did? Well, there was no seminar in the garden going on on the will of God. He didn't attend a seminar. There was no books. He didn't read a book while he was in the garden. Billy Graham wasn't there preaching to him. There wasn't any of that that happened. What's the only thing Jesus did in the garden? What was it? Pray. That's it. And as a result of that prayer, God took his heart where he came in the garden and he realigned his heart. So it was in total alignment with the will of God by the time he walked out. Now, friends, I got to tell you, the greatest problem I face in my life is the gap problem. That is the gap between what I know God wants me to be and what I am. See, I've been reading the Bible for 26 years now. My biggest problem is not that I don't know anymore what God wants me to be. i got a pretty good sense what God wants me to be. My problem is, how do I get there? How do I close the gap between what God wants me to be and what I am? And the answer is, I close it the same way Jesus closed it in the garden. With prayer, asking God not to change circumstances, but to change me. How are you going to close the gap in your life between what God wants you to be and what you are? Seminars are good. Sermons are good. Books are good. But they're not going to close the gap problem. Only the Spirit of God can do that, and He does it in response to people praying that He would. Here's the key point. Prayer not only can change things, prayer can change me, supernaturally, from the inside out. I love what Stuttered Kennedy said. He said, Prayer is not an easy way of getting what we want. It's the only way of becoming what God wants us to be. You hear that? Prayer is not an easy way of getting what we want. It's the way that we can become what God really wants us to be. Let's summarize. What are some of these compelling reasons to pray? Number one, because prayer is how we build intimacy with God. Number two, because prayer brings perspective to the situations of life and helps keep us from making stupid choices. 
and damaging our lives. Number three, because prayer helps us stand firm for God. Number four, because prayer can change situations around me. And most important of all, because prayer changes me. And my friend, if you want to be a giant in your Christian life, then the way to get there is the way Samuel got there. The way to get there is the way Daniel got there. The way to get there is to be a giant in your prayer life. And I don't know how much you pray, but you know what? I've never met a Christian who said to me, Oh, my prayer life's everything it ought to be. Never met one. Maybe there is somebody like that. I've never met one. I want to challenge you today to give God ten minutes. Ten minutes. If you're not praying at all, consistently, privately, just you and God, I want to challenge you to make a commitment today. You're going to spend ten minutes a day in prayer. You say, Lon, that's not very much. Friends, if you will give God ten total minutes with your full attention and pour your heart out to God a day, you will not believe what God will do with ten minutes. I won't have to convince you to spend more. You'll be convinced when you see what God does with ten. And if you're already spending some time in prayer with God, I want to challenge you to spend ten more. And God will radically change your life. And I want to challenge you when you pray, don't pray about crises. Pray about these five things. God, do these things for me. Take prayer down to the deeper levels where God wants it to be. Let's bow our heads together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you an opportunity if you're here today and you're prepared to take me up on the challenge that I've issued you to give God ten more minutes a day, to either go from zero to ten or from wherever you are to ten more. If you're willing to do that, then with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want you to make that commitment right now while God's speaking to you before we leave. If you're willing to do that, then I'd like to ask you to raise your hand and say, God, that's me. I'm going to do it. Anybody want to do that? God bless you. Thanks. Anybody else? Father, thank you for these folks who raised their hand and for maybe others who are willing to make this commitment but didn't raise their hand. And I want to pray that you would honor this commitment in ways beyond anything the folks who raised their hand and made the commitment can even dream about. I want to pray that you would shock us with what you do, Lord, as a result of us committing those ten minutes to you. And Father, I want to pray that you would help all of us here to get beyond just crisis praying and understand these deep and compelling purposes to prayer and let us take our prayer life there, God, so that you can change who we are and change the way we live. Use the message today, I pray, God, to revolutionize our perspective on prayer and thereby to revolutionize our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.